Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. And today I'm coming to you from the White House, where they've graciously allowed me to bring in all of my podcasting recording gear to interview Dr. Ben Buchanan, the White House Special Advisor on AI and the coordinator of the recently signed Presidential Executive Order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. Ben is also a true expert in this field, having co-written the book on this topic last year called The New Fire, War, Peace, and Democracy in the Age of AI, which I highly recommend. Ben, thanks for having me at the White House, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. A long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, so let's start with the EO, and I guess the first fundamental question is, why was this EO necessary? There's certainly lots of technologies out there. The president does not put an out an executive order on each and every one of them, especially this this uh, this detailed one. Uh, I think 111 pages. I, I think you, you guys may have set the record on, on length and also on the technical depth. I was noticing a very technical talk about models that are trained on 10 to the 26 floating point operations, clusters of computers with 100 gigabit interconnects. Not your usual topic for executive orders, right? No, uh, certainly I think it's fair to say this is a long one and this is a dense one, but I think that reflects the importance the president uh, places on this subject and how we have to get this right. I think when the president looks at AI, what makes AI different from some of the other technologies is its combination of just extraordinary breadth and what it can do across wide aspects of our society and of our sec across our security, you know, the, the depth, the, the capacity for this technology to really have meaningful change, to, to do a lot of good, but also potentially to enable a lot of harm. And I think the, the potential, the, the, the rate of change is incredibly high here. We've seen that over a number of years. Uh, the technology has a, a, a great deal of potential, both positive and negative. And the direction from the president was pull every lever. And, and, and te the technology is moving fast. We need to move faster. So that's how you get an executive order like this and uh, the permission structure in the government to, to move as fast and, and as comprehensively as we did. So we're going to talk about some of the details of it, but maybe let's talk about first... What are the risks of AI that the president was concerned about that you wanted to address in this executive order? Uh, sometimes I compare AI policy to running a decathlon in that there's like 10 different events and we've got to sort of compete in all of them. And I think the thing about AI is it has benefits and risks in, in each of those events. We'll just talk about the risks here to, to start. But certainly if you look at safety and security, there's risks to be had there. The intersection of AI and bio, the intersection of AI and cyber, something that we've we've thought about a, a fair amount here. And when look, you say bio, you talk about bio, biology. Yeah, biology yeah. and ability to produce pathogens that could be deadly yeah, and the like. Down right? the line, yeah, and sort of making sure we have a synthesis screening program that gets ahead of that. I don't think anyone... You know, no one's dying from that today, but again, we have to skate where the puck is going to mix sports metaphors here. So I think safety and security is, is one event in this decathlon. Um, another one, of course, is civil rights. And here we do see risks, I think, that are present right now in terms of innocent people being arrested through uh, poor official recognition algorithms, discrimination, uh, potentially in healthcare and other sectors. Bias and models and exactly. training. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and the president's view here is quite clear, which is that discrimination is still discrimination, even if it's by a machine. Uh, and then I think you know, other events in our decathlon, other places where he sees risks and, and also opportunity are, are standing up for workers and making sure that AI is used appropriately in the workplace and making sure AI doesn't uh, enable uh, deception of consumers or new kinds of fraud with voice cloning and the like. Uh, certainly um, thinking about 
how we can have a, an AI ecosystem that's competitive and not captured by just a couple of players is something that he pushes as well. So kind of across the board, there's a range of risks. And, and our view is that we've got to manage those risks so that we can harness the extraordinary benefits this technology might bring. So when you look at the general kind of media conversation or put-in conversation on artificial intelligence, and you ask the question about risks, everyone sort of immediately jumps to general artificial intelligence, the superhuman capability that may take over humanity and the world, and the like. How concerned are you about that, or do you think that the use of AI by bad people is actually a near-term concern? I think it's fair to say our focus is on misuse risks right now. Uh, some of them are intentional, you know, the bad actor using AI for, for uh, biology in, in negative ways. Some of them might be inadvertent, someone discriminating in a way that they don't even know about because they've trained it on bad data. I think it's fair to say that that is our focus. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that um, we want to build a, a system to manage this technology that is robust to uh, the technology getting better. And certainly the technology is getting better very quickly. So not here to say, you know, Terminator, the AIs are all coming to kill us. Uh, um, but I think it's, it's fair to say we are um, trying to build a, a structure here that is robust to a wide range of risks. And we, we, we talked about the risks and their wide ranging, but what are the benefits? And um, having known you a long time, we've had many conversations over the years about AI, and you actually have believed it for a long time before most people sort of woken up to the chat GPTs of the world and the like that this was gonna be quite revolutionary from both negative and positive perspectives. So let's talk about the benefits. Yeah, I think I've picked on biology twice already. So we can talk about some of the benefits in biology where I think the, the trend line is pretty clear. Um, this is a more complicated example, but if you look at um, protein uh, structures and protein folding, proteins are essentially uh, a string of amino acids. And within milliseconds in our bodies and in really all of life, the proteins will fold into a 3D shape. And discovering this 3D shape is actually quite complicated. So um, up until very recently, it would be maybe the work of an entire PhD to learn the 3D structure of one protein because the amino acids interact with each other in very complicated, um, hard-to-predict ways. So you'd use advanced microscopy and crystallography and the like to, to understand the, the structure, the 3D structure of a protein. And understanding that structure was really vital for drug development and medicine and, and the like. And in 2018, all of humanity working together had come up with the structure of something like 150,000 proteins. And since then, almost entirely due to AI and the number of breakthroughs by Google and Meta and others, we now know the, the structure of every single protein known to science, so hundreds of millions of proteins. And I think it's fair to say um, that in the pharma industry, this is AI and, and tools like this for protein structure prediction uh, are fundamental to a lot of the drug development that's going on now. And I think you have a, a pretty interesting scientific debate about where does that lead, how much does that change pharma development relative to some of the other costs in pharma development and so forth. Because you it, still have the problem of the pipeline of getting exactly, approved right. and clinical trials and the like that are very slow. So as is the case often in AI, I think there's, there's sometimes a lot of hype and there's, there's truth to the hype, but we've got to get into the technical details to, to unpack all of it. Um, and I'm not a biologist, but I do think that's a case where if you said, well, what are some of the upsides of this technology that are foreseeable? We've really seen extraordinary progress um, in protein uh, structure prediction. And you know, even just the articulation of protein folding won the Nobel Prize 50 years ago. And I don't think anyone saw us making this much progress in 2016 or 2017 on uh, autonomous protein structure prediction. So the trend line there is very good. What about others? Certainly, I think one the president um, uh, cares a lot about, of course, is climate change mitigation. And here, I think AI has a, a lot of uh, 
you know, potential and, and really realized potential already. So um, first of all, AI excels at optimization. So um, reducing inefficiencies in a defined problem set. And a lot of what we want to do in managing carbon emissions is optimize our processes, whether that's the emissions of jet engines or whether that's um, the design of materials and construction processes and the like. And I think we are already seeing AI used pretty well um, uh, in in those fields, which is which is great and which is which is important, and there's stuff in the executive order of the Department of Energy about doing that more. One example of this optimization is Google used AI to manage the cooling of its data centers, which is a classic optimization problem, and also, you know, as you know very well, a huge a huge cost and also um, you know a source of, of energy um, consumption. And AI reduced in their instance, AI reduced um, the cooling cost by forty percent. So a pretty significant reduction in managing the cooling of these really complicated facilities. And we've seen, I think, some of that in, in other places as well, in the airline industry and the like. Another place, I think, which AI is affecting uh, climate uh, mitigation for the better is um, as we move towards renewables, it's important that we have much better microclimate uh, prediction because that enables us to essentially understand where the clouds are going to be and, and load balance in the grid uh, more effectively. And AI has shown really good progress um, in that as well. I think you can also, if you're willing to be a little bit more speculative going forward in the future, you can talk about, well, can AI help us uh, manage, you know, Tokamak fusion reactor uh, performance and the like, and, you know, managing the plasma and that. That's, that's, uh, there's thousands of variables in that. I'm showing not a fusion scientist, but it, it would make sense. And some have argued that there's, there's promise there as well. Again, more speculative, but I think climate change is a case where you can see AI kind of running the gamut of, of positive impacts if we get it right. So you're not a biologist or a nuclear physicist, but uh, you do have, not unlike me, a background in cybersecurity. You've written another terrific book, Hacker in the State, on, on this issue. How do you see the application of AI to cyber? We think there's a lot there. Uh, and, and in some sense, uh, this is a case where the U.S. government was kind of early. And if you look at um, the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge in 2016, that was, I think, the first foray really out in public at a grand scale at the intersection of AI and cyber. And if you dig into that a little deeper, you realize in some respects, uh, one critique of that was that it was too early. I mean, I think DARPA's job is to be early, so it's not a critique of them. But a lot of the AI that was used in that uh, competition was not really the machine learning paradigm that governs today. And certainly wasn't the transformer that dominates a large language model paradigm, which didn't even exist in 2016. So um, we were thinking about, thinking about AI and cyber here at the White House and, and with our, our friends and colleagues at DARPA. And earlier this year, we thought maybe we could do this again. And maybe we could have another uh, cyber challenge run by DARPA to understand AI's capacity to find and fix software vulnerabilities. And that was uh, announced in August at Black Hat. DARPA's got a great team on this. Uh, it's called the AI Cyber Challenge, and it's a nationwide competition over the next two years, putting a lot of money into it. And this is saying, can uh, hackers compete to use AI to find and fix uh, software vulnerabilities uh, for critical software, critical open source software? And you could imagine a world where this will really help us secure some of our most vital software. If we can get this into the build packaging for open source systems and the like, and eventually for proprietary systems too, that would really help us secure um, this code before we ship it out into the world. And I think it's it's an open question, like all great DARPA efforts, it's an open question of will this succeed and how good is the technology and where are we relative to 2014 and 2015 and 2016. But we've seen enough, I think, um, 
from these large language models to think there's there's a there there, and we're really excited to pursue it. And that's a case where I think the technology really does, if it works, really does benefit the defense and really does provide a more stable system. Assuming know. everyone uses it. Assuming everyone uses it. But but hopefully, again, that's where we've tried to have transition partners so that this gets, gets integrated into open source pipelines and the like. Uh, so this is a case where I think... Um, if we can get the technology to work, if we can integrate it uh, well into our software build cycle, we can have a, a pretty vital mechanism to ship more secure code, which ultimately benefits everybody. Earlier this year, I interviewed a friend of yours, Teddy Collins, where we talked about AI issues as well. And he mentioned a really interesting use case that I'd never considered and actually haven't heard anyone else talk about, which is helping to manage large organizations, right? The people management, the skills management, you often see large bureaucracies like the military, for example, struggle with this of how do you find the right people within your organization? How do you channel their resources towards solving uh, solving particular tasks in an efficient manner without a lot of overhead? And Teddy seems to think that that has a lot of promise. Do you agree with him? Yeah, I mean, Teddy Teddy's a, a great thinker and Teddy's done this work more than I have. Teddy's now back at the White House working at the National Security Council uh, but I think it's fair to say on the organizational front and also more generally, there's just a lot that, that AI can do that we haven't yet unpacked. And organizations that integrate it well will have an advantage over organizations that don't. So they don't integrate it blindly. They don't integrate it just for the sake of sprinkling some AI on top, but they, they find thoughtful ways to integrate into their processes. This is in part what we're trying to do with the executive order uh, on AI, which has a whole section on federal government use of AI and say, how can we use this technology to run more efficient organizations, to better serve Americans, to deliver for constituents and the like. So I think in general, we, we, see, um, we see a lot of this potential, but we also know the devils in the details. Obviously, the lead in artificial intelligence can be an incredible national security asset to the United States, right? And it seems like by all measure, we're ahead right now of other countries. When you look at where these models, most sophisticated models are coming from, it's from the United States. When you look at where the chips are being designed, it's in the United States, even though they're not all manufactured in the United States. Do you agree with that, first of all, that the U.S. is in the lead? And second question is, if we are in the lead, how can we keep that lead? Yeah, I think it's fair to say um, the United States has the beneficiary of a, you know, is the beneficiary of a dynamic competitive ecosystem here that's built over decades, and um, we benefit from that. And, and the United States has a, a leading role to play in AI. Obviously, we have to do it with allies and partners. This is not a case of us acting alone, and, and we can talk about the international engagement side of this if you want. But I also think it's fair to say the president wants us to stay ahead, and the president knows that this is a priority for a lot of nations, including allies and partners, and including for competitors, and that a lot of the things that got us uh, here are the things that we need to double down on. So things like making sure we're bringing AI talent to the United States, making sure we're developing AI talent um, in the United States, making sure that we have a broad base of innovation. It's not just a couple huge companies, but it's universities and civil society and, and small and medium businesses. So a, a lot of that I think is reflected in the executive order and is reflected in um, our overall strategy to keeping our lead. So when I think about sort of the, the century and the technological advances that we're going to have and who is going to benefit the most from it. I sort of think about it as a pyramid. I talk about this in my upcoming book, a plug for the book here, World on the Brink, America can be China in the, in the race for the 21st century. But I sort of think about it as a sort of foundational layer being chips and critical materials that you need to produce chips and other things. And then the second level of the pyramid is really AI and broader autonomy that is going to run on those chips and, and is going to leverage the critical materials that go into those chips. 
And then you have the various applications, and here you can think about space technology, you can think about biotech and, and synthetic biology that you just talked about, you can think about green tech and climate change issues that are all going to be benefiting from that AI and autonomy layer that's built on chips. And whoever can sort of control the base layer of the pyramid is more likely to benefit from the top applications that you can produce from that. Do you agree with that vision and, and that view? You know, it's been a while since I've been a university professor, so I'm, I haven't done the, the theoretical framework in a while here. Um, I think in general, it, it's fair to say that we, we probably need to compete at every aspect of the pyramid. And certainly if you look at something like um, the CHIPS Act, that is that is meant to, to sort of reassert American industry and American leadership in that foundational layer. So to that degree, yeah, absolutely, this is a vital priority for us. And certainly this executive order works on AI. And then, you know, if, as you're moving up your pyramid, we're, we're doing things in other areas, like um, we talked about biology, there's a bio-executive order and a lot of work there, and other applications of AI, whether it's cyber or climate. Like, so, so in general, I think it's fair to say we're, we're trying to compete throughout, um, throughout the pyramid, um, for, for sure. I, I do think it is worth saying, especially from a security perspective, that it is not always the nation that invents the thing that actually uses the thing the best. So, for example, if you go back into history and you look at... Uh, the, the invention of the tank, right? That was a British and French invention that they really conceptualized as a infantry support vehicle. And it wasn't, in, and that was towards the end of World War One, if I remember correctly. And then it wasn't until early in World War Two that uh, the Germans put the tank to use in Blitzkrieg and said, let's use this in a much more effective, dynamic way. And it had a huge success early in the war as a result. So, But this is a little bit different, right? Because no one had a monopoly on steel production right. that you needed to build tanks. But if you have the, the huge advantage on AI, you probably will have a lead in the production of these other technologies. Yeah, right? I, think, I think we agree that AI, you know, advantages in AI compound across the, the board. And, and, and you know, that's why we want to ensure leadership there. I just wouldn't want us to get complacent and say, well, because we, we're doing well in chips or because we're doing well in AI, everything above us on the pyramid naturally falls to us. I think the president's view here is we have to kind of compete across the broader technological ecosystem. And that's what, what you know, that's a strength of the United States. All right. So let's dive into what's actually in this executive order. One of the things that the executive order focuses on is the so-called dual-use foundational models, right? And there's some reporting requirements around that. So talk about what those models are and what the obligations are around them. Yeah, and it's worth saying that I think this follows quite naturally from the conversation we had before about how AI uh, systems, especially the really powerful ones, have huge benefits and also carry some degree of risk. And, and this part of the executive order is meant to address that. And the real meat of this section is when we talk about the reporting requirements that come from a dual-use foundation model above um, this number you mentioned before of 10 to the 26th uh, flops. So and how model. did you guys pick that number? That's just above the current frontier. Um, so that will not catch any system on the market today, but will catch it. So ChatGPT um, is not? GPT-4, yeah. so far as we know, and, and yeah. would, is not at that threshold. Um, but that, that would likely catch a couple systems in 2024. So this is a case where... I think so does that mean that you're not concerned about today's models? You're concerned more about the future models? I think it's fair to say that almost tautologically, we're concerned more about future models, which are going to be more powerful than today's models. It's not to say that you, there's not harm that could come from today's systems, especially if you look at things like discrimination and, and the like. So yes, we are concerned about today, but I think it's for this section, we are focused on essentially what comes next in 2024. And, and, and that's dual use, meaning kind of national security risk, right? Yeah, it's it's a more of a national security term. I think there's the whole rest of the executive order talks about the 
the facial recognition and the housing and the discrimination and all that. But this section we're talking about here is, is more national security focused. So there are some societal risks in play there around uh, some of the standards set in this section. But just sticking with the reporting for a second, the, the executive order uh, invokes the Defense Production Act or directs the Department of Commerce to invoke the Defense Production Act um, to compel the sharing of red team test results with the U.S. government and provide notification of training runs above this threshold. And this essentially lets the U.S. government verify that these systems are safe uh, prior to their release to the public. And does that mean that there's now a requirement to do red team runs against those models? The companies are already committed to doing that in the voluntary okay. commitments. So all the companies in play here over the summer committed to doing red team testing and uh, essentially what this does is it builds on that and says, okay, you have to share those red team test results, those safety test results with the government prior to the release um, of the system. And the purpose of that is to determine what risks they may present potentially? Yeah, exactly. Just sort of get ahead of this. And I think with technology moving this fast, you don't want to be in a defensive crouch. You want to understand um, what the risks are. And it's worth saying, I think it's really important to emphasize, we want to do so from a place of humility because the last thing we want to do is kind of choke off what this, the potential of this technology and we want a dynamic ecosystem with big players and the like. So that's why the threshold is so high here. And and I think the, you know, to, to train a system that reaches this threshold right now, you're probably spending something like half a billion dollars or a billion dollars. And essentially what we're saying is if you're doing that, you've already committed to doing these tests and the regulatory requirement that we're adding on top or the, com the compelling that we're doing on top is to share the results with us. So it's, it's hopefully not a heavy burden, but it does give us some sense of um, where the technology is going and making sure it's safe before it's released to the public. And what about the risks associated with open source models, right? Some companies like Meta, for example, have been releasing uh, open source models and people have been iterating on them and turning out quite good results. So is there a danger that the open source community is going to bypass this commercialization that's taking place and is going to reach a level that's comparable? Well, there's two things here. The first is, um, does the reporting requirement apply? And the answer is yes. So if Meta were to reach this frontier, they and with a the model they intended to open source, they would still have to turn over the um, results to us. But Meta had committed to doing the red teaming, right? If they release right. an open source model and someone in their basement iterates on it, rele uh, releases something without a red team report, right? They won't have this reporting requirement, right? Uh, I will leave it to the, to the lawyers <laughs> to sort of, they've not, the Department of Commerce has not written the regulation yet, so I wouldn't yeah. want to prejudge Got where it. the lawyers land on that. But I think, I think it is fair to say that um, anyone re um, releasing a system, closed source or open source, above this threshold has to uh, uh, do the safety testing and, and turn it over. Um, uh, turn the results over to us. The broader open source question, which I know has become, you know, a huge point, almost a, a theological point of discussion in the AI community, um, is one the executive order does not really take an opinion on. We, we do everything to encourage innovation and the like, but some people are saying the executive order is here to, to crush open source. You know, the phrase open source doesn't appear in the executive order. Um, what we do do is we say this is really complicated. There's some benefits of open source that are real. Um, and there's also, as you just alluded to, at least the potential for some risks. And we want to hear from a wide range of stakeholders on this. And that's what the uh, later in Section 4 of the executive order, the Department of Commerce is directed to do essentially a, a public um, solicitation of views on the, the technical term here, because we think it's important to be precise, and open source has a range of meanings, is models with weights that are widely available um, and, and understanding what the risks and benefits are of that. So, so the administration 
is not opposed to open sourcing your models in theory, right? Obviously, you have the concerns around their malicious use, but you do not want to see only closed source solutions in AI. Yeah, I don't think we I don't think we've taken a position here. I think this is a case where again we have that part of the executive order that says like we've heard the the risks here. We we want to hear more about the risks here. We've heard the benefits here, and we want to hear more about those too. Um, and it is worth saying in terms of you know the the an argument against. Uh, models with weights that are widely available is well you can fine-tune them and you can remove safeguards and like and i think that is that is something that is um certainly gotten attention here as concern and as as systems get more powerful you can imagine that concern continuing to grow it, it also we've seen some evidence where in closed source systems where you have a, a fine-tuning api folks are removing removing safeguards that way and I, I get that an API allows a little bit more granular control over it and like, but I think this is a case where I recognize there's really strong views on both sides. We hear both views. We talk to all the communities and we are just trying to follow the technical facts um, and, and still in the process of doing that. But it is worth saying just because I think it's really important to, to, to get right. Um, no one is questioning the value of open source below some threshold and, and, and in the world in which... Um, you know, no one is saying like, oh, the grad student who open sources their model to at a small level. Like that is nowhere near the consideration of, um, of regulation. By the way, we should probably talk a little bit about the process. Some people in the community that have sort of an anti-regulatory view on these issues tend to think that White House just invents this stuff out of thin air. They don't talk to any of the stakeholders involved. You, you guys have spent many months talking to many of these companies and researchers in this field to understand the state of the art and what's taking place, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we didn't just start with ChatGPT. So if you go back even before the release of ChatGPT, we had the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights. That was something we had, that was released in October of 2022. That was something we announced something like a year before. That was a year of listening sessions, you know, that, that we did for the White House with a wide range of stakeholders on that. Um, certainly we've engaged with companies for as long as I've been in the White House back in 2021. We've talked to academia, we've talked to civil society, the president convened civil society leaders, the, pres the vice president did similar, the president convened the industry CEOs. You know, I've had, at this point, dozens if not hundreds of conversations with, with a wide range of stakeholders here. So um, folks are more than welcome to, you know, uh, differ with particular things in the executive order, of course, but we've tried to run a process that uh, recognizes the breadth of AI's impact and the breadth of the stakeholders. And it's not over because the EO directs various agencies. I think almost every agency in the federal government is listed in some form or fashion in the EO, and they're going to be putting out their recommendations, and, and there's going to be a common period for all of those things as well, right? Yeah, and in fact, in the executive order, we specified very early in the executive order, I think in like the, the principal section that Everything in this executive order needs to be informed by conversation with a range of stakeholders outside of the government, including um, industry, civil society, academia, and the like, and, and, and state and local governments as well, who are important players in the space. So it is literally baked into the executive order that we want this to be a, a process based on a wide range of stakeholder com, uh, consultation. And, and I think it's worth sort of acknowledging the reason for that, which is this is the case you can put on the professor historian hat if you'd like, where... You know, we have a technology that is moving incredibly quickly that's not invented by the U.S. government. And I think if you go back enough decades, you'll see very strong U.S. government roots in a lot of this uh, AI field, which many people forget. But currently, the, you know, the, the deep learning moment and pushing the frontier of what these systems can do, this is not a U.S. government enterprise contra you know, the nuclear age or the Even like. semiconductors, right, that were produced sure, yeah, for the you know, space uh, program. Fairchild, uh, exactly, and the like. So there's, there's plenty, I think, of history there that is different in this case. And I think 
Um, and U.S. government is not even primary customer of much of this technology. I mean, we want to we want to be a customer if we can use it appropriately. You'll not be a, the largest but customer. No, yeah. we're not going to be the largest customer. So uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, we should we should. Uh, I think it's Sandra Schumer who says this. We approach this with a great deal of urgency, but also a great deal of humility. So you mentioned these voluntary commitments. I think there were seven large uh, leading companies in this field. Seven in the first round in July, and then eight more joined in September. Okay, so total 15, 15 companies yeah. that came out with these voluntary commitments around safety of their models, security first principles, watermarking of content, mm-hmm. and the like. And again, sort of the question is, these 15 companies are doing it, right? But there are companies elsewhere that are not. And... One of the things that I noticed the executive order is doing is directing the State Department to have an international effort to try to convince other countries, presumably other companies, to commit to, to that. Talk a little bit about that effort. Yeah, I think this is a, a really good example of a case where the president's leadership here in that instance has led to global progress. So we started having these conversations with the companies in May. The vice president um, and the president was there for a bit as well, convened the, uh, four CEOs here to the White House. We then expanded the group to, to seven, secured the commitments uh, by July. As I mentioned, did a second round of companies, uh, subrost a total of 15 in September. And then in parallel, including in shaping the, the content of the commitments, we had a wide range of conversations with more than two dozen nations that we've convened several times informally to work through AI issues. I believe you participated recently in the UK summit as well. Yeah, the UK summit as well. And many of the nations that were there were in our uh, AI group as well. But we did this several times over the summer to express to the world what we were doing in AI and why we were doing these commitments. And and we introduced, and we we connected essentially the companies to the nations so everyone could hear from America and hear from American companies. And then um, in the G7 process, which is probably the core group of of like-minded nations here, uh, we had similar success. And, and I think the, the Japanese um, government deserves a lot of credit for this because they shepherded that process along. It's called the Hiroshima process. And on October 30th, which is the day the president signed the executive order, we rolled out uh, through the G7 the first ever international code of conduct for AI that the G7 nations agreed to. And, and um, that, in many respects, builds upon, subsumes and builds upon the voluntary commitments that our companies made. And there's some additions to it, but I think it's fair to say the core of it um, has its roots in, in what the United States and its companies did. And we've seen that endorsed not just by our companies that made the commitments, but by companies around the world and indeed by the G7 nations. So a lot more to do, but I think this is a case where our mantra of leading with substance uh, helped us not just develop a posture at home, but set, help set the standards around the world, um, working with our allies and partners. AI touches on so many different topics, so many different issues. And as I said, so many departments are going to be involved in the implementation of this executive order. So, for example, the transportation department is being directed to do studies on safe and responsible use of AI. So I assume that's more in the self-driving space, right? Mm-hmm. And where do you see that? Which they've going? been doing for a while, to, to, their, to yeah. their credit. I mean, this is, this is something that they've uh, worked on for quite a while, and I think... Um, they probably got fewer taskings in the executive order relative to other agencies because they've done so much. Um, but it's it's fair to say that um, we see significant potential and some degree of risk, and we have to manage it. And, and I will defer to the experts there on autonomous vehicles, but we know that that's a priority for them, and the executive order reflects that. And then the other one that's interesting and is certainly triggering a lot of debate is the U.S. Patent Office uh, and the 
copyright and patent issues related to the use of artificial intelligence. Talk about those problems. Well, certainly, you know, I think it's important that we stand up for creators and the like, and, and that's part of the president's mantra here of, of standing up for workers, and it's important that we have an innovative ecosystem where folks can, can um, you know, use works fairly and appropriately. And, you know, it's been the basis of copyright law for hundreds of years in the United States. Um, the executive order directs the Copyright Office and the Patent Trademark Office to um, uh, to work on this. We are actually, in the case of the Copyright Office, a little bit constrained in what we can say to them because they're independent. Um, so they have work that they are doing, but this is not a case where we're putting a thumb on the scale and saying, like, you are, you know, hereby directed to do X, Y, and Z in the way that we're directing you know, the Department of Commerce and other places to, to do that. So um, we're, I think it's fair to say, eagerly um, awaiting what they come back with and engaging with them in an appropriate way. But this is not a case where we have taken a position and directed them because of how they're set up. So, so the main issues here are around if the model is trained on copyrighted materials, you know, does the copyright owner deserve some revenue share and, and some ownership over the output of the model, right? And then also the patent issues that if you produce new works of art with the AI, does it have, do you have the ability to, um, to patent it, like new code, for example? Yeah, I would imagine. I think those are two, two good issues. There's probably a thousand uh, at the intersection of AI and intellectual property, and I couldn't name all of them, but I think those are, those are two that I'm sure the Copyright Office and the courts and, and a, a wide range of legal experts are going to be looking into. So what are the, some of the other big themes in the executive order that we haven't yet touched on? Um, certainly there's a lot, we mentioned it a little bit, but it's worth, I think, emphasizing a lot on discrimination and civil rights. And this is something that the president cares a lot about, something the vice president cares a lot about, um, something we talked about with the companies and talked about a ton with civil society and, and making sure that um, the technology is not used to, to discriminate. And I think there's a real risk here. And it's not prescriptive. You're, you're looking at an outcome here, right? Without necessarily telling them how to get to that outcome. Yeah, the agencies are directed in many cases to set up best practices to help guide the process um, of this. So... Um, how do we understand, for example, you know, is an algorithm discriminatory or the like? And, and this is, I really want to emphasize, this is a case where we've seen real harms already. I mentioned the facial recognition uh, arrests where the facial recognition system is flawed and you arrest innocent people. And that's obviously a, just a travesty of justice. Um, also, if you look at something like AI in the healthcare system, and if you have algorithms that are approving and denying care or recommending care, I think it's, it's pretty well documented that you can have you know, discrimination from those algorithms because of the training data and the like. Because they train on certain ethnicities and not others, right? Yeah, that's one way in which it can happen. Or if it's trained on past hiring decisions, that, uh, not hiring decisions, so you can have in hiring to past healthcare decisions that are biased. It can, it can learn biases that way. Uh, and one of the things I think that's so insidious about AI-enabled discrimination is it cloaks the the discrimination in this veneer of machine impartiality, which which can be very dangerous. I mean, it's like, oh, how could a machine ever discriminate? It doesn't even understand the differences between ethnicities or religions or race or anything like that. And um, obviously that's not true. So I think this is a case where there's a real theme in the executive order of making sure that um, AI systems are used in a way that's appropriate. So right now we've been talking about sort of AI producing data and answers and the like that then humans take action on. And before we even get to general artificial intelligence, and I'm not sure we even know how to get to it, but there is work happening as we speak to create autonomy 
using AI, right? Sort of agents mm -hmm. that can take AI output and actually act upon them. And that can introduce all sorts of risks as well. And how are you thinking about that? This was part of the voluntary um, commitments as well. That this is, and it's part of the red team testing standards. Uh, so if you look at what are the risks that could come from um, AI systems that don't just consume information and make a prediction or a classification, but AI systems that can do things for you, usually in digital space, though not always. Um, this is an area, I think, of focus in, in the red team testing and the like um, that we talked about before. And, and the companies are committed to doing testing in this area. And there's, there's good organizations, I think, that are thinking about this and, um, and the like. And um, certainly something, if you look at like the UK AI Safety Institute, they've talked about this a fair amount and we engage with them. Um, so it is, it is, you know, it's in the decathlon. It's one of the things we have to, to manage is what happens as these systems get more powerful and can take actions in, in the real world. Um, but it's, it's far from the only event. And one of the ways in which it's already happening around the world is in weapon systems. So mm -hmm. you have on the Ukrainian battlefields drones that are being fielded that are doing auto-targeting where they can identify a target through imagery analysis and then make an independent targeting decision because they may not have operator control because of the widespread use of EW on the battlefield. How does the U.S. government think about those types of systems? This is a case where I, I'm proud to say the U.S. government has been early on it. So the Department of Defense had a directive that I think is probably almost 10 years old at this point. I wouldn't know the exact date. Um, in DoD parlance, it's called 3000.09, and it governs how do we think about autonomy and warfare in exactly the way that you describe. And that's the the internal document that's guided a lot of what the DoD has done in its development. And there's no shortage of DoD work that's built on top of that to make sure we're using systems um, that are autonomous or semi-autonomous appropriately. But one of the things that we announced within the last year is this, we're calling the political declaration on the military use of AI. And the vice president announced when she was in the United Kingdom that, um, I forget the exact number, I think it was more than 30 at this point, maybe even more than 40 at this point, nations had signed up to this declaration to say, here are the principles that are going to guide um, our use of AI uh, and make sure that we have, you know, you know appropriate human judgment and the like at all, at all times that we're uh, So does it require operator in the loop at all times or... Uh, I wouldn't want to quote the exact saying here because this is such a, yeah. a legal nuanced landscape, but um, this is the case where I think the the key phrase that I remember we talked about quite a bit with them is that the systems have to uh, align with the commander's intent and um, that there's you know, meaningful, the, the sort of appropriate levels of human judgment along the way in, in making sure the systems align with the commander's intent. And, and that's... Um, Again, I think part of the ethics of, of war. So I would mostly defer to DOD on this question, except to say that this is something, though, is not really addressed in the executive order. It's a place where the, the United States has, has led for uh, almost a decade, if not more. All right. Another topic that the executive order goes into some depth about is the government use of AI. And there, it talks about lots of agencies, even Department of Agriculture, HHS, human, Health and Human Services Department, and others. Obviously, the use of AI offers enormous opportunities. How do you think about integrating that into the federal government? Because let's face it, the federal government is not the fastest at procuring new technologies. There's a lot of bureaucratic inertia that's making it very difficult. How do you make sure that we can leverage it in the fastest possible way? Like a lot of things with AI, it starts with people. So um, we relaunched AI.gov with the executive order, and we did what is actually a pretty complex bureaucratic uh, move and pulled together uh, a wide range of jobs, 
all across from all across USA Jobs and from all across these federal fellowship and tire, uh, hiring talent programs, uh, all on AI.gov. So if you're on the job market for an AI job, want to come serve your country, um, AI.gov has, has you covered for a wide range of opportunities there. And we're trying to accelerate hiring in AI across the board. You name the agency, I guarantee they're looking for tech. So talent. is the U.S. government going to build its own foundational models or? How do you see? I wouldn't that? want to, to, to you know rule things in or out. I don't think we're going to spend ten billion dollars on the foundation model, um, but I think it's it's fair to say that we could imagine contracting. We could imagine cases where you don't need a huge model, and maybe we do train something. So, the U.S. government. Are you is, tweak an existing model on sure, your own data, classified data, for fine example. tuning exactly, or you know you train a small thing from from start and. Yeah, this is this is pretty far down the weeds, but I remember something like at this point, probably more than a decade ago, where like the Fish and Wildlife Service, which you don't think of as an AI agency, was posting on Kaggle, which is this AI you know, machine learning clearinghouse competition for here's our data, help us figure out how to analyze it. And like so, again, the U.S. government has has a lot of creative spots and has been doing this for for quite. And a has while. a lot of data. And has an enorm enormous amount of data. A separate part of the executive board we can talk about was is making that data public so folks can train on it and so forth. But just sticking with the talent theme. Um, AI.gov does is a you know one-stop shop for bringing the talent to the government, which I think is, is step one. And and also related, of course, is how do we use this talent? How do we use these systems? And here um, we've tasked out and already produced something called the OMB M memo, M for management. And this is guidance to agencies on how they should be using AI and how they should be procuring AI and the like. And this relates as well to another part of the executive order related to the federal um acquisitions council and the federal acquisitions process and the like, and how do we bring these systems in? So we have a lot of work to do in, in building on this guidance and implementing this guidance, but we're trying to lay down a marker for this is what it means to, to use AI um, responsibly. And what we're not doing, to be clear, is saying to everyone, okay, don't use it, because it'd be crazy in 1995 to say to the U.S. government, well, just, you're going to have to sit the internet out. I think there's a lot of a lot of upside here and a lot of cases where there's a lot of risk and we have to manage it. And this is a case where, as is so often true in AI, we're trying to thread the needle and get this right. In 2021, there was a pretty groundbreaking executive order on cybersecurity that created something called the Cyber Safety Review Board, on which I have the privilege of serving, a government board that investigates cyber incidents. I noticed that this CEO creates an AI safety mm -hmm. review board. Talk about that model. Yeah, I think this is really a, a testament to Secretary Mayorkas, who made this a, a personal priority of his and, and the executive order process, and to the team at DHS, which I think learned a lot from the creation of the Cyber Safety Review Board and the, the work that you folks have done on you know, a number of issues, and said, okay, well, what can we do for AI? Can we, can we get a similar group together to think about, in this case, their charge is AI safety, especially as it relates to critical infrastructure and integrating this into our some of our society's most vital components and the like. And so. the Cyber Safety Review Board is more sort of backwards looking. There's an incident. That's we, right. We review it. This is going to be this more, is more forward looking. looking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think I think we've learned some lessons from cybersecurity. And and Ann Newberger, who you know very well, who's the deputy national security advisor here for cyber, is always saying, you know, let's let's apply the lessons we learned from cybersecurity and let's be forward looking and not wait to to try to secure AI till after we've integrated it. Let's get ahead of it and think about if we're using AI and the power system for some of the optimization I mentioned to you before, how do we do so proactively in a way that's secure? And I think that's one amongst many of the things we'll be asking um, the AI safety uh, review board at DHS, which I believe is, is you know, standing up uh, quite soon. Last question. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan often talks about with regards to the competition with China about the small yard, tall fence approach, yeah. where certain critical national security technologies like artificial intelligence and the chips that can be used to, to build these models, we will not 
supply to China, and we now have an export control policy around that. How successful are we in that space? And obviously, the Chinese are trying very hard to catch up, to try to build their own models, to try to build their own chips. Do you think we'll be able to stay ahead and, and fulfill that goal of making sure that we have the best AI models vis-a-vis -vis China, given our advantages that we have today in the chip design and equipment to manufacture chips, and given that the best models are so far in the United States? Yeah, I think the small yard high fence policy is a good one. And I think Jake's made a lot of really tech savvy decisions over the last couple of years to, to understand the nuances here and, and craft the policy in a way that works. Uh, one of the things I think that's that's uh, important to underscore here is it's not that we don't want China to, to have AI. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of nations around the world, including nations we don't always agree with that we continue to sell chips to. It's that we are worried about the ways in which China is using AI to modernize its military, to repress its population. Like, And that is the root cause of of applying this so policy. So surveillance and modernization of their military, weapon systems. And exactly, right? Related to what we were talking about before. So that is the root cause of this of this policy here, rather than some kind of like creation of economic headwinds or anything like that. I think if we wanted to have economic headwinds, we would have a much more aggressive, it'd be, it'd be large yard, you know, high fence uh, policy. So we've, we've tailored this in a way that I think is narrowly targeted and appropriate. I think Jake- It would be a neighborhood. Yeah, it'd be, you know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think, I think that's the, the impetus for this. And I think the, the last couple of years have shown that the policy um, works. But I, I do want to emphasize as well, even as we do this, we continue to have, and certainly aspire to have, um, productive conversations with the Chinese on artificial intelligence. And there's a, the line in executive order about allies and partners, but there's also alliances where we're, I don't want, I'm quoting from memory here, but something like, you know, we're willing to talk to um, nations, even our competitors, about collaboration on AI safety and the like, and, and managing some of these global risks and setting some of these standards and the like. And, um, and what would that look like with the Chinese? I don't think we want to go too far down into private conversations, but I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, the, presidents have had productive conversations about this and, and met um, in San Francisco and the like. And um, President Biden has been clear that, like, yes, we're worried about the, the risks of um, military modernization and AI enabling that modernization, AI enabling repression and the like. But we value um, open, direct, candid dialogue with the Chinese on a wide range of issues, including this one. Well, Ben, just an absolutely comprehensive discussion of this executive order and the AI issues more broadly. Uh, I know you, you in your current position cannot pitch your own book, uh, <laughs> but uh, I can, and uh, I think it's a phenomenal book for anyone that wants to learn more about AI. Um, and again, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, talking with us. I'm definitely not endorsing any books, minor or otherwise, but thank you very much for having me.